The intersection of marketing, creativity, and technology leads to great insights as the digital and the imaginative merge. To unpack some of the latest thinking in this space, I'm joined by Mosaka Lenga, the group CEO of The Brave Group and the author of The Brave Code. So marketing has forced people to think a little bit differently. Um, it's also become more important in the business conversation that marketing plays a role in being able to drive innovation, um, in being able to hold brands and businesses to account. Um, and therefore at the you know executive table, um, people are relying a lot more on marketing than they did in the past. I ask him why it's beneficial for brands to ensure that their marketers and technologists collaborate to solve complex problems. Uh, the data that's coming out from you know most research houses around uh, diversity in, in team dynamic also proves that when you have multiple different people looking at the same problem, your ability to solve that problem is increasingly higher and your ability to solve complex problems is that much more higher. Stay tuned for a thought-provoking conversation that will redefine how you think about marketing, creativity and technology in the digital age. For more insightful conversations, subscribe to the Lead Creative Podcast. And please share this episode. It really helps. Welcome to the Lead Creative Podcast, where we talk to creative industry leaders, influencers, and brands. We discuss the strategies that influence brand thinking and shape industries. Thought leaders and heads of agencies let us in on some of their thinking and insights. I'm your host, Mongye Simtati. Enjoy the show and please share and subscribe. Mosa, thanks so much for making the time to talk to us. Um, yeah, it's uh, congratulations, by the way, on launching the Brave Code. It's been an interesting read. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good to be here. And uh, Appreciate the the plug for the book. It is uh, out in stores now, so um, I really appreciate that you are doing this interview at this time. Uh, hopefully, we can get into it. Awesome, awesome. So, Musa, as an acclaimed author and thought leader in marketing and technology, could you share your thoughts and your perspective, really, on how these two fields have evolved and intersected to sort of complement each other over time? I love your use of the word acclaimed, um, but I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, Critically, internationally renowned. <laughs> tell my kids that. They'll tell you you're joking. Um, anyway, no, no, thank you. I think the, the two fields of marketing and technology um, have evolved fairly, fairly organically with hindsight. You know, that hindsight's a perfect sign. So if you look back at where... A lot of it started. It seems obvious that would end up where we are today, but the reality is, when you're in the in the thick of it, you don't really know what direction it could take. So let's look at marketing as as, as a starting point. Um, the evolution of marketing has really been about this transformation of of, of channels and the you know traditional difference between above the line and below the line, and then we, we remove the line and you know now there's this digital thing. So you know where does it all fit in? Um, and it really is just because of the proliferation of these of these uh, of these channels. Um, and in the midst of that, you know, throwing the cat amongst the pigeons is digital and, and technology, right? So marketing has forced people to think a little bit differently. Um, it's also become more important in the business conversation. 
that marketing plays a role in being able to drive innovation, um, in being able to hold brands and businesses to account. Um, and therefore, at the you know executive table, um, people are relying a lot more on marketing than they did in the past. In the past, you know, a lot of the FMCGs understood the value, but I think some people have now, or many sectors, shall I say, have now realized the, the value of having a marketer in the room. Uh, and then similarly, technology goes without saying has exploded. Um, you know, I remember back in the day, I was actually doing a talk this afternoon uh, with one of the big five banks, and I was re- reminiscing on my days in uh, in one of the one of the five banks, and you know, I was telling them that it was unbelievable to me that at some point, you know, the policy dictated that people were not allowed to be on social media during work hours, right? That was actually a written, documented policy. Um, and this was not many, many years ago, right? So it just gives you a sense that people went from a point of view that you can somehow manage and constrain something like social media. Meanwhile, people are going to have devices and do it anyway. Um, and I'm sure that if we look back on where um, that came from and where we are today, one can agree that that's an archaic way of thinking about policy and governance and empowerment. So um, even from a technology point of view, it's forced people to accelerate their adoption, obviously. Um, we've become au fait with uh, some of the, um, uh, the hardware that is available, largely mobile devices. Um, and as we see wearable technology starting to also become a thing, it's simply extensions of the fact that we want to be able to uh, add value to our everyday lives using whatever we can uh, to do so. So, so when marketing is, is evolved in the way it has and technology has also accelerated, I think really that's what's given rise to the opportunity from a creative perspective. Um, you know, really and truly, your, you know, your, your only limitation is your imagination um, in the world that we're in today. Yeah. Now, looking back at that time when you were with one of the banks, if you were to start that position today, how would you do things differently in that marketing team? <laughs> Given that there's so much technology now. Yeah, I think, I mean, people think I'm generally a risky individual, but I think I would have taken more risks, to be honest. Um, I think, you know, if I consider the headspace I was at the time, I was a young man going into a bank, you know, from an entrepreneurial background, untested in the corporate context. And so I think I was probably quite restrained with my approach because there's a lot that I didn't know. Um, But even in the restraint, I was doing things that people thought were just completely risky. Um, and, and that's because my, my, my mandate uh, warranted that. So, so I definitely adopted the idea of, you know, ask for forgiveness later. But if I could do it again, I would take far bigger risks. And I think the gap between the brave and those that aren't is grown increasingly wider. And the people that are getting the risk, uh, are the rewards, sorry, are the early risk takers. So I'd be a big proponent for being far riskier um, if I was to do it again. Now, in uh, Letters and Trampolines, you discuss this idea of bridging the gap between marketing and technology, which is precisely really where we started. How can brands ensure that their marketing teams and tech teams truly work in synergy and in tandem together? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and you know, marketing and technology traditionally were, were uh, potatoes and potatoes, right? They were uh, oil and water. They never used to mix. Um, you know, when I was running... Uh, the team in, a, in, in the bank, and I was starting to have conversations with the guys at uh, Group Technology. It was a strange thing. Why was I, you know, making the effort to go and meet with the techies? Um, and similarly, some of the techies were like, but you're from marketing. What are you doing here? Um, and because it was so strange, it was difficult for people to understand where we could collaborate and do things better. But what started to happen organically 
is once you have people that can straddle two worlds or two disciplines, they start to be able to create commonality. And when you create commonality, you can also start to define common goals or common, uh, common enemies. And I think that's really the big challenge, is that if you're not spending time with, the, with different disciplines, there's no way you can start to arrange yourselves around common uh, enemies or common opportunities. And that ability to arrange yourself around something, so if the common enemy, as an example, um, is, uh, is, is, is having a single view of customer, you know, bad example, um, it is both advantageous for the marketers and for the technologists to be sitting in a conversation solving for that, is that how do we have a single view of our customer? And there's going to be a component of that that is contributed by marketers and a very clear component that's com contributed by technologists. So, so if you're not having the discussion, um, then you won't be able to start solving those increasingly more complex problems. Uh, the data that's coming out from you know, most research houses around uh, diversity in, in team dynamic also proves that when you have multiple different people looking at the same problem, your ability to solve that problem is increasingly higher and your ability to solve complex problems is that much more higher, right? So when you take marketing and the technology, which were traditionally oil and water, um, it's amazing what you can solve when you actually put them together. So, so I think the number one, it's, it's political will and intent. Can we you know, actually get into a room together? Number two, identify the common enemy, common threat and, and be diligent around, around solving it. And then the third thing, is a mutual respect for discipline, right? So when you are in a room with someone that's got a different discipline or a different uh, uh, capability to you, you have to have mutual respect, right? I can't be in a room and be like, ah, oh, it's just the marketers, or ah, oh, it's just the techies, right? So that kind of language is, is more divisive than it is uniting. How then do you, do you strike this balance or at least are able to bring it all together because the two teams speak different languages, even though they're trying to solve for the same problem, right? They kind of speak uh, different languages. The one is more technically inclined. The other one is more, emo more emotive and, and more, you know, appeals to, to that side of the customer. How then do you bridge the gap, uh, both in corporate and in, on the agency front? So I think you most importantly is you take your lead from the goal of being a common enemy or a common threat. So that has to be that language, whatever you are describing, and I use the very loose term, you know, let's try and develop a single view of customer. You, you, you have to agree on that, right? What are we solving for? If you can't agree on the problem statement, then it's very difficult to agree on anything else further down. So that's very important from a clarity point of view. Second to that, when you start translating what that means into work streams, it's important, uh, you're quite right, to use the language that both, um, both disciplines or both sides of the coin understand. And in so doing, there's a part of working together that means you're going to have to learn new things, right? So it's not possible, you know, to reinvent the entire marketing, um, you know, uh, language or the technical language. So there's, there's, there's going to be some give, right? So as you create the common language, there's still going to be an ability for me to have to learn to speak a bit more technical or to learn to speak a bit more about marketing. So when, you know, when, when, when techies are answering, asking you the question, how do we know that this is going to work by having a single view of customer? And I use a very marketing term and I say, well, it means that we're going to have a, you know, a greater share of wallet, right? That's a foreign concept to a technology person. But they have to understand that to be able to understand when we talk about share of wallet, what the implication is on the business. And similarly, you know, when a techie is rambling about, oh, you know, this is not going to work because we can't integrate APIs, 
and a marketer sitting there and going, what, what do you mean? It's important that they know the principle of an API so that next time there's a similar challenge, you can also speak the language. So I think there's respect for the language that exists, but I think the role of a true leader can integrate into a common point of view. The common point of view is based on the threat or the opportunity that you're unpacking, um, and that's what helps you to be able to create some language around reporting and feedback. Um, the reporting and feedback language is more important to be common than the actual technical language because when you report and you're showing whether you did or you didn't achieve the objective, you need to all be on the same page, that we were trying to open accounts and we did not open the accounts. That can't be confusing to anybody. Um, so the language of the KPIs and the measurables is what has to be absolutely um, crystal clear on both sides. Now, marketing has always relied on intuition, but data now plays a pivotal role in how we understand the customer. You've mentioned the single view of customer. How can you find the right balance between this data-driven insights and creative instinct? Yeah, that's a great question. And if I knew the answer, I'd be a very wealthy man, but I'll, I'll give it a stab. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, know, you know, data, data is... Data is a, is a great source of stimulus. And when I say stimulus, it should get you thinking about stuff, right? So data, if you're collecting it correctly and properly, it, it's a stimulus to the, to the thought process that ultimately will give you value, right? And if you're collecting data from the correct sources, that stimulus should allow you to make business decisions that make sense in real time. Um, and that's useful, right? It's, it's useful because someone who ne doesn't necessarily have a higher order thinking will still be able to know by looking at a dashboard that this is good or it's bad. It's red or it's green or it's amber, right? That's very important from a visualization perspective. But where, where the human being and where actually you add value is that when you start to make sense of some of this data that you're getting, being able to interrogate it in the context of the world, in the context of the market, in the context of the consumer, that still remains extremely valuable for a human being in the particular process. Artificial intelligence is trying its best to replicate that, and I don't think we are, we are quite there yet, and I think the reasoning, uh, context, and nuance are still major contributors um, that marketers can bring to data to make you know, both work well. Uh, but in an ideal world, you've got an understanding of the data because it's correct, it's clean, and it's coming from the right place. But the process that you go through to reason and the process that you go through to understand the nuance is still critical in the outcome. It's also important because, as we know, especially in South Africa, you've got a, you've got a situation where you're still transitioning. You're, you've still got data sets that are inaccurate. You've still got bias in data sets. You've still got a whole lot of things that if a human being is not looking at it and you just take what is being shown to you for granted and you run with it, you'll end up making a lot of mistakes. So we're not in a world yet where we've got pure, uh, high-quality data. And so it calls to question the importance of still having a human being intervene. Now, technology is opening up new avenues all the time of storytelling. And this is another side that, that um, you've spoken a lot about. I mean, from AR to VR to interactive experiences that uh, people are having where they interface with technology um, and the stories that, that we are then able to tell as a result. In your view, how will brands use these tools in the future to better engage with audiences? Yeah. I think it's a, it's a great question. So technology allows you to be able to heighten the senses of an experience. So sight, sound, touch. So those senses can now be heightened with technology. Much the same as, you know, as they say, AGI is trying to replicate 
uh, human you know, behavior and human uh, interaction. Sight, sound, and touch are all things that technology can elevate as you're trying to engage with consumers. Now, as you're telling a story, it is important that as you tell that story, there's consistency. But when someone interacts with you in a particular concept, in a context, it's important that they feel um, what the story is trying to deliver. And that's what technology helps us do. It's like going to you know, these, uh, these cinemas, D-Max or whatever Max cinemas, and you know, the, the chair is moving, you're getting wind blown in your face, there's you know, all sorts of things that are happening around you. You're watching a story regarding, you know, um, what's that guy that's underwater? Uh, Mermaid Man. What is that chap's name? <laughs> yes, yes. I, the, I that that it, one. But I, I, can, yeah. I can picture it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's the latest movie I went to see. You can tell I was paying attention. I went with my kids. Um, but but you're, you're watching this thing and you're listening to the story. And then this technology around you is moving, like the chair is shuddering when there's a wave. The water, as it blows up, there's like a gust of wind on your face. Um, and that's all enhancing the story, right? So, but the story still needs to make sense. It'll be extremely random if all of those things are happening to you and you're not following the story, right? And so for me, the brand narrative is the story. And the technology that you can wrap around it, around sight, sound, taste, and touch is what really enhances that for someone to uh, to remember and take away from it. So, so I think that's how they work together and how brands should be considering uh, in ensuring that there's a, there's a synergy between both. How do we not get lost in it? Uh, I remember the you know the times when social media was still emerging. Um, it was I think someone was. Uh, Someone I spoke to at the time was saying, you know that something is new when someone is talking on the phone, telling you that I'm on the phone, right? That's kind, <laughs> of, <laughs> that's kind of how brands used to how brands used to use social media, right? Like we are on social media, but like, yes, I'm, I'm reading this update on social media. How do we not get lost in it in that way? <laughs> Someone's telling you they're, they're using the technology. I love that. Yeah. Um, how do we not get lost in it? I don't... I, I don't know whether it's a it's a matter of getting lost in it. I think you you know your your anecdote is perfect. It 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 it, bege- it begins to normalize, and when you normalize it, it kind of becomes fabric of of what you do. Um, and 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 in the beginning of any technology, there is a requirement to get completely immersed in it, so that you understand how it works, you understand what its capabilities are, and what you know, to what end it serves you. Um, but in that process, there is a value in having the devil's advocate in the conversation. So in a, co- in a corporate context, if you've got a room full of techies who are just all about building the latest, greatest thing, um, the strategic thing you should do is always have someone who's a devil's advocate in those discussions. That person can hold them accountable so they don't go down this uh, uh, this vortex of just trying to build stuff that no one is ever going to use, as an example. So um, the, right, the right composition of people in a discussion, especially strategic discussions, is a good way to have a lever that keeps you from going down a rabbit hole and from getting lost in it entirely. But as I said, I think it's also important that in the early stages of any technology that you get completely immersed in it so that you do understand how it works, so that you do understand the pitfalls, so that you do understand what the, you know, what the guardrails should and shouldn't be. And somewhere it then normalizes in a way that human beings can interact with it correctly. So, so I, think it is, I think it's required. And to be honest, to make any technology useful, you have to really know how it works. You know, social media, similarly, for it to have become useful, you know, people need to have understood the dynamic of people communicating with people that are in different parts of the world in real time. Like, there's a value there. So you have to get completely immersed. And when you get immersed, you also discover things as, you know, platforms like Facebook did. You discover things that are uncomfortable. You 
discover things that start to challenge humanity and our acceptance of humanity. So I think that is part of the process. But what is always important in the board or the governance of these companies is that you have a, a, a voice in the room or a voice in the conversation that becomes the voice of reason. Uh, and that's the only way really to make sure that you don't get completely lost. Mm-hmm. Now, in your book, uh, the latest book, uh, The Brave Code, you write that shared value is gradually shifting the outlook of the media, advertising and communication sector. Can you share what shared value means in the context of the book, first of all, and how you're seeing this change in the creative and marketing industries? Sure thing. So I think shared value is, is firstly, I mean, it's not a concept that I own at all. It's, a, it's a, something that exists in the context of being a more sustainable enterprise or sustainable business, right? Um, we interpret it as the fact that a rising tide should lift all boats and the tide that we rise should lift boats around us. So it's the fundamental acknowledgement that we don't operate in a vacuum or a silo, right? So everything that we do do has got an impact on our society, has got an impact on our clients, and has got an impact on the team members that we have within our business, right? That's very important. And so net-net, the outcome that we should have and strive to have as a business is that when we do something, that the benefit is transferred to all those stakeholders that I've just spoken about. And so the direct translation for me is the insight came from a niggly that I had with agencies. I've always believed agencies were quite insular and over time have become actually quite mistrusting in the relationships they have with their clients, um, in, in the way they conduct themselves, and in the way they've chosen to show up, right? From the way billing happens um, to the way relationships are managed, I think there's a, absent, uh, there's a huge absence of transparency. And one of the fundamental principles that underpins shared value is the ability to be transparent in, in, your, in your dealings. It's a sustainable uh, principle. Um, and so my challenge to myself was if you're going to build an agency that you believe in, um, you have to address the issue of trust and transparency, and you have to address the issue of being able to create value further than just your own selfish interest as an agency. And so the shared value within the creative enterprise space is how do we use our collective skills, knowledge, and intellect, which are all our capitals, our basis of capital, um, to, yes, solve for amazing creative challenges when it comes to briefs, ETC, but how do we think beyond that? How do we think about when each team member joins our company, how in three years' time do they leave here a fundamentally different person to when they joined? How do we think about brands that we work with over time becoming more responsible about how they should be speaking to communities and to people? How do we arrange and drive agendas with our clients around them being able to be far more cognizant of shared value? So it really asks of us a lot more than what we had to do in the past. And to be honest, do we need to do this? No, we don't. But the reality is if we have to respond to our changing economic and global climate, we as an agency have to choose a battle and fight it hard. And we simply believe that shared value is one of those places where we can, number one, uh, be honest and we can start to create value for our team. But number two, it's something fundamentally sustainable that will help everybody in our ecosystem. If you're enjoying The Lead Creative, please share this episode with your network and hit follow or subscribe. Enjoy the show. Does it change the kinds of people then that you that 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 you take into the team as a, as a shared value enterprise? Yes, it does. I mean, it it so may, let me say so. It doesn't change the kind of person. It gives us a way to vet 
the kind of people we want in our business, right? So the importance is that we've got a process to establish whether you'll be able to fit in and buy into our culture or not, right? And previously, there wasn't a clear way for us to do that. Previously, ah, you can do the job, you got the job, come start on Monday. But now as we engage with this idea of shared value, there's, there's things we can ask people um, in the process of interviewing them. As an example, uh, when was the last time you did something in your community, right? And what was that? And how did that work? And, you know, how often do you do that? Um, we have got on all our scorecards, we have the same measurable every single quarter for everyone on our team. How did you add value to yourself? How did you add value to your team? And how did you add value to your community? Those are score, those are, we measure people on that. So now that we know that that's part of our ethos, we can actually make sure that when we interview people um, and they come up and they're not really, ah, community is not important to me. Ah, you know, I don't really show much self-love to myself. I just kind of work until I die. Um, you know, ah, my clients, I hate clients. They're terrible. You know, those are all very clear signals that maybe you wouldn't buy into the principle of shared value because that's what we believe. Um, so it's helped us to do that, right? It's helped us to be able to be clear on that. How does this shared value model influence the kind of clients, though, that you work with? Yeah, that's a tough one, right? So, so there are two scenarios, right? There are scenarios of clients that we've worked with historically, and there's clients that we are going to be engaging with going forward. With clients that we've worked with historically, it has allowed us to know which clients we can be super vested in and double down in, right? It becomes quite clear if there's mutual respect, if there's mutual value being created, how deeply you can invest yourself in a client relationship. And when you know that that doesn't exist, it allows you to manage kind of your heart, for lack of a better word. So you'll approach it far differently if you know that the client that you're serving doesn't believe in the same shared value principles. And therefore, you manage to either exit gracefully uh, or you put certain things in place to try and align a lot better. With clients going forward, so now that we know what we know and that we're trying to be what we're trying to be, um, it, it definitely helps us to be more um, disciplined with the kind of opportunities we go for. Um, you know, we are not, we're not now in the place where we just go for every single opportunity that comes our way. Um, and we assess it on the merits of do we think that we can actually get into a strategic relationship and will it make sense over the long term? So, so it's a fine commercial balance because once again, the, the, you know, the prevailing logic with uh, most traditional agencies is, you know, if there's work to be done, we'll do it. Um, regardless of whether it, you know, it kills our soul and it's toxic and we just don't like it, it's paying the bills. Um, we're shifting away from that philosophy and it's not, not easy, but it also forces us to be more creative around how we make sure we've got sustainable revenue in the business. Now, you mentioned uh, the, you know, the clients you've worked with historically and, and, and almost your current clients and the clients that you'll work with in the future. So as a shared value enterprise on the agency side, how do you enable clients to rethink their business or how they do business to li live up to this ethos? Because it benefits everyone, right? Shared value benefits communities, it benefits the communities you work in and it benefits the, the people in the business. How do you then enable or broach these conversations with your clients for them to become more shared value enterprises themselves? You know, the, 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 the interesting thing is that most large organizations, if they're JAC listed or if they're um, if, they're, if they're global companies, the interesting thing is if you look at um, their, their strategic plans, a lot of them have already started to articulate becoming more sustainable businesses in one way, shape or form, right? Um, what is not happening is that it's not always trickling down and it's not always permeating how they do things on the ground. 
But in most cases, you've got a very clear license to have those discussions based on what's been communicated as intention, even at board level, right? So if you look at any organization that's listed on the JSC, I can guarantee you now, there's something to do with sustainability. There's something to do with them showing up as a better corporate citizen. That language exists already. The trick is for us to be aware of it and to figure out how to translate that into how we talk to them on an everyday basis. Um, and that's a challenging thing. The challenging thing is to say, hey, client X, um, you know, you've briefed us on doing this particular project and you've you know, stated outright that you want to be a sustainable enterprise by 2020 or 2030, whatever the number may be. Um, do we believe that by putting this project product out into the market, it's going to help us or it's going to take us away from that goal? Um, that's the brave conversation to have with clients, which no one wants to have because I'll take the money and I'll run. Um, but that's what we are trying to do more of now because that information exists. Where it doesn't exist, where you've got clients that haven't necessarily made the uh, intention clear or they don't know that necessarily this is something that they want to do and they're kind of sitting on the fence. The importance is, is, is for us to show up in a way that we can demonstrate what shared value has meant for our business. So in our case, you know, we can go to them and we can talk about how we've completely you know, evolved how we reward and incentivize our teams um, using the principles of shared value. And that becomes interesting because it's stimulating content. Um, it may not change things tomorrow, but it certainly adds something different into the conversation. And, uh, and we've seen, you know, one or two clients start adopting the language of shared value, right? And, you know, maybe they haven't yet fully interpreted it into their business, but they're starting to kind of try and, you know, you know, what is this thing? You know, when I talk about it, it sounds like it should be something we're doing. And slowly but surely, we have to have the, you know, the, the, the right frame of mind to walk that journey with them as well. The rise of streaming has meant that we are seeing less and less ads, um, much to the celebration of many people um and of course <laughs> to the you know to the dismay of the industry as it were what can brands and agencies do to adapt to this change of people seeing less and less ads yeah so i mean i suppose it's it's back to how much you can apply creative thinking right so we spoke right in the beginning about marketing and technology and my, my, my statement was the only limitation right now is imagination. And so ads in their, in their rawest format were interrupting people's you know, journeys. They were interrupting people's experiences. And it felt like it was not something that people wanted because I'm engaging with something and all of a sudden your ad pops up. Now, the challenging thing is to think about, okay, well, if my ad pops up and it's an unpleasant experience, what is a pleasant experience? And how do I make sure that that, that is what I do and not with an ad? So in the rise of streaming, as you know, you know, the really clever podcasters, the really clever content creators, you know, early days figured out how to integrate storylines around products, around services, right? Because then it didn't feel like you're jumping into my, into my viewing pleasure. But it required someone to have an imagination about it. They said, what if an ad wasn't a thing that came into the, into the, into the user journey, but it was integrated into the user journey, right? That's creative thinking. Um, you know, other people have chosen to go, well, what if I decide that I don't use any ads on my, on my platform, but I gather as much meta information from users through the platform and I retarget them afterwards in a place where they'll have better appetite for these ads, right? That's creative thinking. So, so I think that, you know, the importance of, you know, us, you know, as humans wanting less and less and less commercial stuff uh, means that we have to think harder about it. The other most, you know, important thing is, Ads are not all bad, right? Ads are not all bad. I think, I think they've, they've got a bad rap now, 
Um, but there's not, there's something quite serendipitous and beautiful about an ad that you act, for something that you actually need um, showing up at the right time, right? I, I still think there's something beautiful about that. The problem is, it's just it's just there's been such a barrage and it's just been overwhelming um, that now it's just completely invasive. So, yeah, shame they've got a bad rap, but they've got a role to play. In your discussion about the role of advanced technology, you likened it to magic. How do you see this? How do you see this magic in the creative development of advertising campaigns? How do you see it play out? Yeah, so I, I and look, I mean that quote is a great quote, right? It, it, I forget I'll paraphrase, but effectively, it goes something along the lines of any significant advancement in technology at the time um, is 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 like witnessing magic, right? Because you're seeing it for the first time, and it's so true. It's it's really really true. Um, I'll give you an an example um, of one of the fintech or insurtech companies that has made the strategic decision to dominate outdoor media. Right, and and they've made this decision with the insight that their particular customer is going to be in their car driving around, um, and they've got a they like to read a certain interesting quirky things. It so happens that that happens to be a probably 1980s individual, um, 80s to 85 um, is kind of their sweet spot, and so they did a lot of work in the background to try and understand the psyche of that particular individual using data analytics and behavioral methods. And as a result, when you see an ad that they've put out, it is, it is, there's such a charm to it because it almost feels like they were inside your head when they considered the copy they put together. Um, so if, you, if you're driving down the road and you see someone, you know, you see an ad that says, have you ever made a phone call to your parents' forehead? Right, and you're like, hell yeah, I've done that before. How did they know? Right, that's for me. That feels magical because the ins the insight that connects me to what they were saying, and for me to go, yeah, that's absolutely me. And yes, absolutely, I've made a phone call to my parents for it because it's a particular era of individual. Right, that is such a clever way of using technology, using the insight from data, and then manifesting it not even as a as a digital interaction, but as a out of home interaction. So when those three things come together, it, it it's like magic. It's like how did how the hell did they know that, right? Which is the good old advertising. When you can see yourself in the thing you're experiencing or reading, it feels like magic. Um, you know, and and that's I think quite beautiful about what we do, what we do. We're now moving more and more into this space of AI. Um, you've mentioned it um, a bit as we were as we were talking. And with as we do this, how do agencies balance this sort of AI-first marketing strategy with traditional creative approaches? And why is this balance so important? Because we keep talking about this balance. I think this balance comes up time and time again in our conversation. And, and yet, there isn't a clear sort of path to how we balance, uh, we balance it instead of relying on the technology. Yeah, so my view is that the balancing is going to be short, short to medium term, right? So we're only balancing it now because we're scared of this thing taking our jobs. Um, if we're using it properly, there isn't a balance, um, to be very honest. So we are only in this transitional period because this is like a, you know, it's like giving a kid, a, putting a kid in front in, in the steering wheel of a Ferrari and telling them to drive. So you now, have, you know, you drive cautiously. You know, and that's balancing. So we've got this thing that's now AI and ChatGPT and all of that. So we're being cautious in how we're trying to drive this thing. 
Um, but it's transitional because as we start to get comfortable with it, as we know, you know how it works and what it actually does and what I do um, in the context of the technology, it will be less about balance. It will become about how we get the full value. Um, and at that point, there will be also be a shift. There will be a shift in the respect of what you do versus what it does. Right, and you know, stick into the analogy of driving a car. Um, at some point, you get comfortable with the car that you're driving, the steering wheel, the speed, how to take corners, how to do all of that. And then it's obvious that you're the driver of the car, and the car is there to move you forward. Um, you don't have to question that. You don't have to, you know, kind of fight with the car around, you know, are you going to take my job? Um, you know, it's very similar when you come and looks at tools like, you know, ChatGPT. So as we are learning to drive now, and as we are cautious and going forward, I think it's a good thing that we're doing that, but I think it's going to be short. Uh, short to medium term, um, once people get the technology to a point where they know exactly how to use it and the limitations and the extensions and what their role is, I think we'll be just you know completely integrated to technologies like that. Um, and I think the, that's a scary thing that everybody talks about in terms of singularity at some point. Sure. You've spoken a lot about, I think, this you know this interplay between humans and technology in, in very many spaces and I've, and I've followed the work that you've done. But a lot of people aren't in that space. So it's not natural or comfortable for them to kind of get into that space. So this is a bit of a two-pronged question. The one side of it is, how do you use these technologies in your creative process as Mosa? And for somebody who is skeptical of these technologies, how do they begin adopting them? Hmm. Yeah, so, I, so how do I use them? I absolutely use them every single day. So, you know, for me, the big thing is that technologies give me back time, right? That's the one thing that I fully appreciate is that you can go from zero to one in 30 seconds, whereas going from zero to one is just myself will take an hour or two, right? So I fully appreciate that it makes me more efficient, right? No matter how bad the output is or how bad the first version is, it makes me more efficient, right? So I think about it as, as human and, right? It's not about the technology, it's human and. So I'll always be the human, but it's human and. So efficiencies are something I definitely get from, from platforms like this. Secondly, I get the dexterity of understanding how it works, right? So as an early adopter, as someone who, who, you know, for the first time, you know, everyone went on social media for the first time. It was a weird experience. It was like, you know, kissing a girl when you're 13, you know, you don't quite know how to do it. And that's always going to be the case with new technology. So the dexterity of getting through that learning curve is something that people need to embrace quicker, right? Because as soon as you're through the learning curve and you, you know, you see the, you know, the weed from the, from the trees, that's when you can start to think about the actual value it can create. So, so I, I, you know, I in the beginning with some of the chat GPT and Dali and all these things, it was just like, what am I doing? Like, how is it? And then there's a moment where you start to get comfortable and you realize the value that it creates. And then when you get comfortable and you realize the value, then your imagination starts to think about the possibilities. So I'm very grateful that I started tinkering early because I'm at the stage now where I'm thinking about the possibilities. Right? So now we're building actual products to try and say, how do we make this easier for others? Uh, which comes to your question, is that how do other people get comfortable with it? Well, if you're not going to be an early adopter and you're not going to you know, be able to get your hands dirty and uncertainty and all that stuff, then you're likely to work, wait for a productized version that ushers you into using the technology a lot easier. Right? You're likely to be that person. Um, the reality is that you probably can't avoid it and it's going to happen at some point, but you're likely to figure out how to use the technology as a result of a product that someone will build at some stage. Um, and secondly, if you are really hesitant and you are really skeptical and you're not sure about it, 
Um, find someone who's done it before. Find someone who's gone ahead of you. Find someone who's, you know, just find someone to explain it to you. Um, and when they explain it to you and you understand it in layman's terms, sometimes that drops your guard around, oh, I can't do this. Oh, it's too difficult. Um, and then last uh, but not least, um, if all else fails, uh, try and find a Netflix video about how this stuff works. <laughs> Yeah, there's um, so there's a question that we ask our guests, um, all our guests for our next guest. And in this question, we asked uh, Brawili what he would ask Brawili, who was part of our previous episode, what he would ask our next guest. And this was his question. What I would ask them, uh, we'll go back to AI, as, as I'm sure you, 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 uh, uh, you may guess. And the question for me is, are they following the, 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 the trends that have to do with the particular skills that will be most affected and least affected insofar as AI is concerned and specifically within, within our industry? That would be my question to them. Mm -hmm. So the jobs that will be most affected, if, if, the, if the job can be executed without you thinking about it, that is going to be affected by AI. Let me give you a classic example. When you drive to work sometimes, you actually zone out and you drive on autopilot. And, <laughs> and there's periods of time where you're driving, but you're not really driving because you're subconsciously somewhere else. Those tasks can be taken over by a computer. When you are typing something or working through a spreadsheet and you've done that a thousand times before, a part of your brain switches off and you're actually just mechanic going through the mechanics of what you need to do. All of those jobs can be 100% taken over and mechanized. And, 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 uh, and that's where I think the danger is. Because when your brain switches off in the execution of a task, it means that it's been repeated so many times that something else can probably do it easier. Now, one of the questions that uh, we ask all the time um, now on these in these conversations uh, is if you could ask any person, any living person from anywhere in the world about their take on marketing, creativity or life, who would that person be? And what's the one question that you'd like to ask them? Wow, that's interesting. That is very, very interesting. I never thought about that. But um, who would I ask? I would ask Tracy Chapman um, why she chose the style of music that she did. Um, because I think that Tracy Chapman's got such a soulful, and I've been reading a little bit more about her now and her turbulent life and her love life. There's a lot of complexity there. But I would have asked her why she chose the sound that she did. She was an extremely talented musician, and obviously she chose something that suited her style, personality, and, and, and uh, vocal diction. Um, but I would ask Tracy Chapman why she went down that particular route musically. That's an amazing, yeah, that's an amazing question. And and actually speaking of Tracy Chapman, I think we grew up on Tracy Chapman, right? And and I think, um, I mean, I was young, I was very young when I first heard her, and I grew to love her even even as I as I became an adult. So that's a, that's a fascinating question. Um, now the last question for you, Mosa, is. What's the one question that you'd ask our next guest about their work, their approach to creativity, or their thoughts about the industry in general? 
Um, to your next guest, whoever you are, I'm going to punish you. Um, <laughs> so the question would be, what do you deeply believe that you are often in disagreement with many people about? So what is it that you deeply believe that most people don't agree with you on? Wow, that's a, yeah, that's an amazing one. Moza, thank you so much for making the time. There was a lot in that from AI to uh, tech, this intersection between tech and marketing, the intersection between tech marketing and creativity as well, as well as your outlook on AI. And yeah, thanks uh, for sharing your thoughts on the Brave Code. That was, yeah, that was, uh, that puts a lot into context because I'm still reading the book. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. It was, a, it was a lovely chat. And once again, appreciate uh, uh, plugging the book for me. Um, you can get it at all your reputable bookstores and you can order it online if you must. But I appreciate the platform. Thank you for listening to The Lead Creative. Did you get one insight that's worth sharing from this episode? Please share it with your network or your friends. Pop me some of your ideas and innovative finds on Twitter on at Mongesi. This podcast is available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find me on mongezi.com.